0: to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 31 today. We're we're dealing with the subject of discipleship and uh, what every believer basically needs to know about following Jesus, and uh, we've looked at a couple uh, different ...things in the past weeks, so I just want to remind you the purpose of this book... ...the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is to affirm that Christ truly is King. And uh, God, in His foreknowledge, knew that mankind would raise up other people, other things, other monarchs... ...in competition to Christ. And we see that even in our society today. And when a person becomes a Christian, the Bible says that he submits willingly to Jesus Christ as Lord, Master, and King. That's what a true believer does. He gives himself over to the sovereignty of God. From all the little things maybe he's followed before, all the kings in his life, he sets them aside to follow the King of kings and the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 to 42, he gives us instructions on what it means for those who are committed to his sovereign rule, and reign in their lives. And just in way of review a little bit, last week we looked at uh, the the goal of discipleship. We looked at that word disciple, and it means learner. And we, we we mentioned that in Ephesians 4, verse 12, it tells us that we're to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Okay? We're, we're to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In other words, we're to teach people about the work of the ministry, to get them involved in the work of the ministry, to edify them in their faith. And the way we do that is through teaching and preaching God's word. And so a disciple is basically someone who's willing to learn, someone who's willing to submit themselves to a teacher, come under their teaching, and under the authority, more importantly, of God's word as it's being taught. You have to be careful today in this society in which we live, even in Christianity, who we're submitting ourselves to as teachers. We want to make sure that what they're teaching is found in the Bible and that it's based upon the truth of the word of God. We looked at the goal of discipleship and the goal of discipleship was what? Christ likeness. Okay, the goal of discipleship was Christ likeness. It was to become like Christ. That's why when we're saved, we don't stay the same. We're becoming more and more like our Lord and Savior each and every day. And uh, we looked at a couple commitments there, five quick commitments. A uh, Disciple is someone who's committed to God's calling, who's committed to God's will, who's committed to seek other disciples so that they could be training them as well. They're also committed to following Christ, and they're also committing to learn and to teach the essentials of Christian doctrine. And we learned that a disciple is a follower of Christ. That sounds kind of basic, but sometimes people miss that. And as a result of that, you claim to have a relationship with Christ, and you also understand what it means to count the cost. Because it's not going to be a bed of roses as you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus never promised a bed of roses. As a matter of fact, we found out that he promised just the opposite. He promised suffering and persecution. We also learned that a disciple is to be treated like Christ in verse 24 because he's associated with his teacher. And Jesus gave an illustration of a a student and a teacher relationship. And he also gave an illustration of a slave and a master relationship. And because of that, they act like their teacher. As Christians, we should act like Christ. Now, do we do it 24-7? No. Because of sin in our lives, sometimes we don't act like Christ. But our default as believers should be to desire To act like our teacher and master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we also looked at the disciples to content, is content to be like Christ. In other words, if they treated Christ in a certain way, why would you think the world would treat you any differently? And he talks about it's enough that, you know, a teacher become like, or a student become like his teacher, or a slave become like his master. Don't think you're going to surpass that. And we looked at how they treated Christ wrongly. And as Christians in the world today, if we're bold with our faith, we're going to be treated in what we would say in a wrongful way. But that's okay. Because it's not us personally. It's, it's Christ we're representing. And so Christ's teaching at this point in Scripture embraces everybody and anybody who claims to have a relationship with him. Not just the 12 apostles. It started out with just the 12 apostles. Because he starts out in this chapter here a little earlier and he says, hey, you're going to go out and you're going to raise the dead and you're going to do all those things. And we found out that that's not definitely on this missionary journey. It's it's something future that Jesus is talking about that they're going to do that after he leaves and, and ascends to heaven to be with his father. Then the disciples start raising the dead and they do some things to gain the attention of people so that they can share the truth of the gospel with them. But... What we're talking about now applies to everybody who claims to have faith in salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will have his values. Will submit to his authority. And so, you see, there in uh, in at the end of verse uh, twenty uh, uh, four, there, where it talks about um, how that. It's going to be before the Son of Man comes. It's talking about something in the future. And then you look down to verse 25. It says, If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, in other words, Satan, it's just another word for Satan. If you do a word study on that, it's a it's a kind of a, another way of, of referring to Satan. How much more would they call those of his own household? In other words, if they told Jesus, Hey, you're doing all these miracles and everything, that looks great, but you know what you're doing by the power of Satan, bud. You're not going by the power of God. That was what the religious leaders said of Jesus during his day. And so if that happened to Jesus, it's definitely going to happen to us. People are going to accuse us of all sorts of things as we're bold in our faith. And so we have to remember that, that we're not going to be above the teacher. They treated Jesus like that. They're probably going to treat us maybe even a little worse at times. Today I want to look at kind of a, a different angle on discipleship because he kind of brings it around to a point and he begins to talk a little bit about fear. And I just want to read for us verses 26 to 31 so it's fresh in our minds. And so you can follow along there. Actually, I'll start in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, verse 26, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not what? Fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body, both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Subject this morning is starts off with the idea that a disciple does not fear the world. That's what he's sharing with us. The disciple does not fear the world. In Matthew 10, Jesus is is instructing his disciples not to fear the world in verse 26, 28, and 31. But you know what? When someone tells you, I'm going to throw you out into a pack of wolves, and they're going to do all sorts of evil against you. The natural response is what? Fear. That's just something that's going to happen naturally. I mean, you can look at suffering this way as a Christian. We have the privilege of traveling the same path that Jesus traveled. Remember, after Jesus suffered, God vindicated him. God rewarded him. God crowned him with glory and honor and life. And you know what? He'll do the same thing to us. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid of them. Three times in Matthew. Do not fear. He says it in the beginning of the text. He says it in the middle and he says it at the end of the passage. Each time he also states a reason not to fear. I mean, it's impossible to miss that point. Do not fear here in in the verses we're looking at this morning. Did you know that "Do not fear" is probably the single most common command in the Bible? I got this neat little software. Doug and I went to a seminar a couple of weeks ago, or last week actually, and so I used some of what I learned and applied it. And the Bible tells us to shake off fear about a hundred times throughout the text. Computer does all that for you. Before you have to get all these books out, and uh, you know, now, now you just punch this thing at a computer. It's there. It's amazing, amazing. And it gives a reason almost every time why we should shake off fear. Whenever it mentions it, it says why not to fear, and then it tells us what not to fear. We shouldn't fear conspiracy, shame, insults, financial loss, loneliness. We should not fear armies or enemies. We shouldn't fear hostility or the lack of a leader. We shouldn't fear suffering or death. Not our death or even the death of our parent or the death of our child or the death of a friend or a loved one. Isaiah 8.12 says, do not fear what they fear. In 1 Peter 3.14 it says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Fear is something that grips people. I mean, people are afraid of all kinds of things. What what are some things that we are fearful of today? Just shout them out. What are you What are you afraid of? Don't be shy. Financial loss. loss. What else? Snakes. (laughs) What's that? Sickness. Sickness. Death. What else? loss of a job terrorism i mean we could go on and on and on couldn't we i remember when i was little I was about 11 or 12 i was fear fearful of heights just had a thing about heights and my brother my loving brother who's now a pastor at the time he wasn't so loving but <laughs> my sister took the four of or the three of us and her my other sister and my other brother, out on a road trip to California. And we stopped in the Badlands of South Dakota. And I remember walking out in this big wash Canyon kind of a place. And they had a, you know, kind of a guard there, a fence there. And you'd walk out and you'd look down. And it was just, you know, I mean, I I couldn't even, you know, I'd be like, whoa. You know, I'd be 10 feet away, peering over the thing. My brother came up behind me and he grabbed me. And he took me out and he went, look! I mean, I thought my heart was going to stop. And then rather than take me back, he just dropped me, not off the cliff, but right there on the dirt. And I remember just going, oh my gosh, and going down on all fours. Thinking I was just freaking out. And I remember crawling back, this this, this kind of little jut that stuck out there over this cliff. I remember crying and my sister getting mad at him. Wow, well, he needs to learn to deal with that, you know. And I don't know if that did it or whatever, but later on in life, I started rock climbing. I mean, amazing. And, you know, I can get up on a roof, go up here and change the light bulbs. Not, not an issue with it. I don't know when that happened or what happened. Maybe my brother just shocked me into... But you know what? I no longer have... I have a healthy respect for heights, <laughs> but I no longer have that Fear that just ah, you know, you start to get dizzy and just boy, you gotta hit the the deck. I no longer have that. But we fear all kinds of things. Crowds, speaking in public. Some people are afraid of singing. I want to sing in public. See, when the Bible says do not fear what they fear, what it means is don't take your fears for granted. Question your fears. Stop and say, what am I really afraid of? Don't just take it for granted. And in Matthew 10, what he's telling us is to put our fears in perspective. Jesus certainly promises his disciples trouble, doesn't he? He says, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have a lot of trouble. And if you just look at that trouble, you're going to get overwhelmed with fear. Just the idea of being thrown into a pack of wolves, raging ravenous wolves, that would be fearful enough. But he also went on, he said the disciples would be betrayed to councils, to governors, to kings. He said that in verses 17 and 18 of Matthew 10. He says all kinds of people will reject the message and hate the messenger. Our own family members may betray us. They may even kill us. See, but Jesus keeps all that in perspective, and he wants them to do so. He says, basically, if you're going to suffer, it might as well be for something important. <laughs> I like that. If you're going to suffer, suffer for something that's worth suffering for. Jesus says, the cause is important. The person is worthy. And furthermore, he's going to take care of us anyway when we go through that suffering. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whosoever puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. You know, I really believe one of the main reasons churches in general are not more evangelistic in their effort as individual members to go out and share the gospel in the community in which they live, its work or whatever, Because the fear of men strangle that desire for evangelism. Because we don't want to experience difficulty. Because we don't want to experience disrespect or persecution. And so somehow we hold back from telling the good news of Jesus Christ. And so often we're caught up as believers in this self-preservation mode. See, Jesus warned that persecution would happen. And he wanted his disciples to be bold in the face of it. And that's so important to understand that. When you're persecuted, you know, it's because of the boldness that you have in Christ. That doesn't mean, oh, okay, well, I don't like to be persecuted, so I'm not going to be bold anymore. The Bible does say there's times to pack up your tent and move on to the next city, (laughs) lest they kill you so you, you can continue to share the gospel. But it also says the same thing's going to happen there. You're going to share the gospel message. What are they going to do? They're going to persecute you. doesn't mean you stop from being bold. He wanted his disciples to be bold in the face of persecution. 1 John 2.15 says this. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, a person who is afraid of the world, a person who is not interested in witnessing for Christ, a person who is unwilling to pay the cost of discipleship. I mean, I hate to say this, but it's likely that he's not a Christian. He may be deceived. Their priorities are all wrong. See, when the pressure is on, people like that bail out. That's why a little later on in First John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, they went out from us because they were not of us. It's the same thing in the life of Jesus. Remember when the disciples were following Jesus, and the disciples doesn't just refer to the twelve, it refers to hundreds, possibly thousands of people that wanted to learn of Jesus. And when he turned to them and one guy said, hey, I'll go wherever you go. And he says, I don't have any place to put my head tonight. Probably going to be sleeping alongside the road or whatever. Oh, that guy was along for the free ride. The other guy wanted to go bury his father, who wasn't even dead yet, just to get the inheritance, and then maybe he could help Jesus out with the money from the inheritance. He didn't follow. The other guy wanted to go home and say, Bye, folks, I'm going to follow Jesus now. And Jesus said, eh, You either follow me now or never. He had too many close ties at home. was unable to cut those strings See, those who are under pressure and remain faithful to Christ give evidence of their faith. They give evidence of being true disciples. Those who fold when the pressure's on give evidence of not being a disciple of Christ. In Luke 12 32, as Christ often did, he reminds his disciples not to be afraid. Here's what he says Fear not, little flock. Kind of an endearing term, little flock. Fear not. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, sometimes in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of our trials here on this earth, we fail to cut through all that garbage and see the bigger, bigger picture. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've read the end of the book. And you know what, folks? We win. It's a battle that's already done. We, we win. We win this battle. Is it going to be a struggle? Yes. But we win. I mean, if I was in the in the in the boxing ring with Mike Tyson, and somebody says, "Hey, you got to go six rounds with him," all right. I mean, I would never get in that ring. I mean, the, the guy would just even in the, the way he is now, out of shape. I mean, one hit, he'd break my neck. But if the guy told me, you know what, at the very beginning of the sixth round, you're actually going to connect with Mike Tyson and you're going to knock him out. You're going to get. Basically, everything beat out of you up to that point. But just hang in there until the sixth round. Because when that when that punch lands on his, he's going to be out cold. And you're going to be one of the few people that have ever knocked out Mike Tyson. Do you think that would give me a little motivation to hang in there and take some punch and take some chops until the, the sixth round? Yes, it would. And see, sometimes we lose that perspective because we're getting beat up every day in the world. And I'm just here to tell you that Jesus wants us to keep... Things in perspective, especially our fear. He wants us to understand that, you know what? Keep it in the perspective of eternity. Even after the resurrection, Jesus reminded his disciples not to be afraid. I mean, they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And they were still fearful. See, fear is something that Christians constantly need to be encouraged to avoid. We need to get out of the church... And get out of our Bible studies to proclaim the word of God to a world that's lost and dying on its way to hell. And they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator said we need to avoid being like the Arctic River frozen over at the mouth. So many times that's what we are. We get out there and we just... I'd say something, but I don't want to be offensive to anybody. I want them to be my friend. We need to make sure, beloved, that what we're all about in in sharing sharing Christ is that we understand this in perspective of eternity. Because in verse 26, he tells us why. He says, fear not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall be revealed and hidden that shall not be known. The reason we don't have to fear the world is because we know who wins. We will be vindicated. The disciple knows that he will be vindicated. Notice that verse in verse 26 there. It starts off with therefore. (laughs) Therefore. You always look back why the there is therefore. Just go back and it will show you. Whenever you see a therefore in scripture, just go back a couple verses. And what it does is it looks back to what Jesus had previously said. That since he experienced persecution in the world, they're going to expect the same thing. You're not going to get around that. Nevertheless, they shouldn't be afraid because he says, there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hidden that shall not be known. Do you know the truth about everything? One day will be known. Let that sink in a little bit. The truth about everything one day will be made known. We look at the world, the worldly people in the world, and those who are successful, and we're looking around and we're seeing the wicked prosper, living in mansions and spending their money on craziest things. That will all change when the truth Will become clear. God will reveal who was truly successful. And He's going to vindicate those who are His disciples. What is now hidden will be revealed when God takes vengeance on those who do not know Him. He says everything that is hidden will become public. That means glory for those who are sharing the message of Jesus. That means glory for those who are suffering persecution and judgment in this world. I'm often reminded sometimes when you're talking with people. That in general, and this is a good thing for everybody to have in mind. I mean, for me personally, when I speak to anybody other than my wife. When I speak to anybody other than my wife, I remind myself, I try to remind myself, sometimes I don't do a good job, but I try to remind myself that every word I speak to that person could become public in some way. And it almost kind of causes you to pause a little bit. In other words, you assume no one can keep a secret. Everything we say may soon be in public. But Jesus adds that everything will become public on the last day. In other words, no misdeed will remain hidden. If guards abuse the prisoners, that's going to be made known. If people gossip and slander, every word will be heard. See, evildoers cannot keep their evil deeds secret for long. And you know what? When you look at publicity, it's really a blessing for all that is good and true, right? Schemers and evildoers, those are the people that love the darkness. Those are the people that love the shadows. The truth loves the light. God makes the truth known, and so should we. And to do so, we have to listen to God. We have to study the Bible. We have to understand what the truth is. And we also have to test our thoughts. To make sure that they are in alignment with God's word. Sometimes, you know, I hear people say, "Well, you know, I think God is just leading me to do this." Well, how do you know? Well, I just have this feeling, and everything's feeling based. Your feelings can lie to you. I've had people come in and and ask for, not in this church, but in another church, for counseling concerning their marriage. And they sat down in front of me and said, well, you know what, we just don't feel like we're in love with each other. Matter of fact, I feel like I love this other person who's not even my wife, so we're just going to get a divorce. What do you think about that? What do you say to somebody like that? They're listening to their feelings. Their feelings are lying to them, but they're listening to them. So we have to test our thoughts. We have to test what God is leading us to do against God's word. If an idea passes the test, well, then maybe the Lord's leading you in that direction. And we have to be brave enough to, to speak up when God prompts you to do so. Hugh Latimer was a leader of the English Reformation And on one occasion, he had the daunting privilege of actually preaching before the sometimes violent King Henry VIII. And Latimer was about to say something with the king as his audience that the king might dislike. And I mean, the king wasn't above above going or below going, hey, you know what, Uh, I don't like what you said off with your head. So here he is speaking before the king, and he's about ready to say something that the king might take issue with. It tells us that he fell into an audible dialogue with himself. Standing in front of the king, he knew in his mind he's about ready to say something the king's not going to like. And here's what he said. Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say because the king is here. Then he paused and he said this, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say because the king of kings is here. Then he went on to share what the king may have taken issue with. Another reformer, John Knox, was even more famous than Latimer for his boldness in the face of danger. When he died, they said, Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. See, that's the kind of boldness that this world needs to see in those who are called disciples of Christ. If Jesus says it, even in a whisper, we should shout it from the rooftops. Well, the first thing we see here. Is that he assures them of a reward. Scripture assures believers of their reward. In various places, just a couple, Revelation twenty two, twelve, it says, Behold, I am coming quickly, Jesus says, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Second Corinthians um, five ten says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive according to his work. Second Corinthians 5.10, we must, or uh, Revelation 2.10. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Over and over and over again, we we see the idea that we're going to be rewarded one day for being faithful to Christ. So if we're persecuted here for a little while, let's put that in perspective to our reward. Those who have an eternal perspective don't worry about being popular in this life. They don't worry about appearing wise and noble in this life because this isn't where we get our reward. Our reward is where? It's in heaven. So it enables disciples to confront a society in which they live with the claims of Christ while looking forward into eternity for the reward. Because it's definitely not going to come here. You're going to be maligned. You're going to be persecuted when you're bold for Christ. The second thing he points out is the revelation. We we need to live for the future. We need to live for the future. See, too many Christians trade momentary popularity for eternal reward. They're unwilling to live for Christ now. So they're sacrificing the eternal reward. In Luke chapter 8, verse 16 to 17... Jesus says, No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand, that those who enter may see the what? Light, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. 1 Corinthians 3.12.13 says if any man builds upon the found, upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall test every man's work of what sort it is. And you can look at other passages that talk about not only our eternal reward but also about the idea that we got to get over the present and look toward the future. John Calvin, who was an incredible preacher, was banished from Geneva for preaching the gospel of Christ. They kicked him out. And when he was notified, he said, If we had served men, we should have been ill rewarded. But we served a great master who will recompense us. He's looking forward. Our reward is not here, our reward is future. disciple knows he'll be vindicated. Secondly, a disciple fears God more than man. A disciple fears God more than man. Verses 27 and 28. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. See, a person who truly worships and fears God does not fear man. It just just doesn't go together. And you know that because, first of all, they keep nothing secret. You know, there's no secrets in Christianity. What Jesus has told us, we're to tell others. We're to give the message of the gospel in its entirety, just as we received it. At the time of Jesus, when the rabbis would teach their students on reading the Torah and different things, you know, they'd be in front of people, and the rabbi would stand here, and the student would stand here. And it would be kind of like a, a, a teaching time. And there'd be people out there, and the student would listen as the rabbi would lean over and say, okay, here's what I want you to say. Say this. And he'd say it real quiet so nobody else could hear. And then the pupil would say whatever the rabbi said in his ear. Only he heard it, but he was to proclaim it to the whole synagogue who was gathered there. See, they understood that contextually and and in their culture. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That young man would repeat exactly what he was told. And the Lord used that picture to show how disciples were to openly speak what they had been told privately. So when we come to Christ, and God tells us through his word that, hey, you know, I want you to go share this with other people. We're to do it boldly. By keeping nothing secret, by telling everybody. He said, when I tell you in darkness, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, proclaim from the rooftops or the housetops. In other words, he set no restrictions on what his disciples were to share with the lost and the dying of the world. They're to hold nothing back. So many times we hold back, don't we? When we're sharing Christ, we just hold back. With the fear factor, we got other things going on, and we just hold back. We restrain ourselves from telling people the truth about things like sin. About things like repentance and hell. In heaven. In Christ, in the blood of Christ, and, and all these things. We don't want to use certain phrases because we're afraid we'll offend somebody. And oftentimes when it comes to evangelism, we start our conversation with somebody, well, Would you like to be happy? <laughs> don't you want to be happy in life? Happy, happy in Jesus. Where do you see that? In Matthew ten. Being thrown into a pack of wolves doesn't sound too happy to me. Would you like to have all your problems solved and go to heaven forever? I mean, you'd have to be a total moron to say no to that question. Would you like to experience true love? See, those who ask such questions think that somehow we're going to make Jesus so desirable... Well, they just can't help themselves. Where do I sign up? Yeah, I want to follow Jesus. That sounds so good. And that's why our churches are full of people who think they know Christ. They have never counted the cost. They probably never even repented of their sin because nobody ever told them to repent of their sin. Nobody ever told them about righteous living and holy living and living like the Savior lived. So they make some profession of faith. They raise a hand or they sign a card or they walk down an aisle thinking that somehow that makes them a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. Show me in the Bible where that makes you a Christian. doesn't. You won't find it. As a matter of fact, those things can all be manipulated. I bet you I could turn on the emotions even today... ...and by the end of the service have several people walking down the aisle. What good is that? If I'm just playing to your emotions, that's all I'm playing to. If God's not truly speaking to your heart... ...if God's not truly convicting you of the sin in your life... You know, I can make you feel however you want. It's not going to do any good. You're going to walk out of here the same sinner you came in. But when God truly touches somebody's heart, when God truly transforms someone, when God truly grants them repentance, and they come to God and they say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And they're crying out in utter desperation to a holy God. And God saves them. You see a change. You see something new. You see something transformed. They're not the same person they were before. And yet so many times, well, you know, somebody comes to Christ. Well, you know, we got to give them some time. They're learning and, you know, certain things. I don't see that in the Bible. Everybody that's come into contact with Christ, if they were truly a follower of His, they changed radically. And I think we're confusing ourselves on this sometimes. I mean, if you were to approach someone you work with and lovingly say, my friend, you know what? Do you know that you're in danger of burning in hell forever if you don't receive salvation through Jesus Christ? (laughs) You know, after you pick them up off the floor. I mean, stop and think about it. Is that a true statement? That's a very true statement. You know, we want to coddle. We want to, you know, wow, we can't just say that. Sometimes maybe that's the best route. Cut right to the chase. If they're still your friend after you say something like that to them, man, God's definitely working somewhere. (laughs) Because that kind of message offends people. Now, we don't want to go out purposely to offend people. We don't do that. But the message itself offends people. And the problem with churches today is they take the message and they dumb it down to be non-offensive. So, you got all these churches full of people, some of them saved, probably most of them aren't. And then they're there to worship God? An unbeliever can't worship God. But we're to tell everybody that. We're also to add nothing to it. Verse 27 says basically, we are to tell not only nothing less than the whole truth, but also nothing more. Don't be adding anything to the gospel. The first means getting alone with God and pouring over His word. Only from that secret place of study and prayer, you go out and you speak God's truth boldly before others. And when you add... To the message of God's word, you confuse people regarding the truth. So we're to tell everything, but don't add anything to it. Don't add your own version of the gospel. Just go to what the Bible says and share the gospel with people. And he also says we're to do it by making public proclamation. In the days of Christ, a lot of times, just culturally, when the city needed to hear something, announcement had to be made. Okay, they would go to the highest rooftop and the guy would go out on the rooftop and he'd shout and everybody could hear him. That's what he's talking about. These roofs had flat roofs. And so they had a little patio up there. And a lot of times, you know, people slept and ate up there in the cool of the night. They'd have social events on the roof. But making an announcement only required that a person stand on his roof and shout. And you'd have the advantage over the whole city, over the whole town. They still do that today. When we're over in Turkey and and, uh, the Middle East there, in the Muslim world, we saw these little uh, minarets and little tower kind of deals. And uh, now they have a speaker up there and they do it mostly automatically. But in some of the smaller villages, um, the local... Iman, or whoever he was, he'd go to the the, the minaret, come out of his house, climb up the stairs all the way around, and he'd go up and he'd do the call to prayer, and you could hear it all over the all over the area there. And in the smaller villages, they didn't even have you know the the speaker and all that, and just because it's a small village, but you could hear him clearly. And that's basically what 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 he's talking about: going up and shouting publicly. So not telling everything, not adding anything anything to it, making public proclamation, but also you've got to be willing to pay the price. See, there's a price to be paid, beloved, when you tell the whole gospel. Over in Acts chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, it records how Agabus warned Paul that he would be imprisoned for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem in Acts 21. The text then records Paul's resolution And basically he says, hey, I'm going to finish the ministry here. (laughs) I don't care. You can throw me in jail if you want. I'm going to continue to do what God has called me to do. See, Paul's example shows us that the gospel is never to be kept a secret. And that there's a price to pay for proclaiming it clearly and loudly and boldly. Someone asked me, what if the government says, you know what, you're not allowed to say certain things if, if, if they restrict you somehow as they're seeking to do in, in, in the future with what you can say from a pulpit? Being that it would be a hate crime to tell someone that their homosexuality is a sin and other issues. I, I pray that God would give me the grace to just keep on doing what I'm doing. They throw me in jail, they throw me in jail. I mean, it's out of, out of things like that that you see in other countries. The church of Christ doesn't suffer. It grows. They're more emboldened under persecution. And beloved, I, I just want you to know that it's coming. It's coming to our country. You may sit here today and say, oh, I don't think that ever happened. Oh, it will happen. The Bible says it will happen. And if we can't be bold now when we don't have restrictions and everything, you think we're going to be bold when it might cost you your head or your freedom, it's interesting. I I used to do um, little evangelism training classes with with um, youth leaders, and uh, as part of that class, we would do kind of a uh, a what do you call it? Like a play, kind of a. You know, just a pretend kind of a thing. Like, okay, you're going to be the unsaved teenager, and I'm going to be the youth leader, and I'm going to walk into the, you know, whatever. And and, and it's so funny. I mean, you're among Christians, and people are just fearful. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. What What do you mean? You know, I mean, when, when I persecute you for sharing your faith, it's just a joke. This isn't for real. I mean, this is just pretend. You can't even do it in this pretend setting, and you want to go out and do it on the street? I don't think so. So we have to remind ourselves that that's what what God requires us. To keep nothing secret. Secondly, to keep things in perspective. Keep things in perspective. Jesus keeps things in perspective. Um, he He says there clearly, fear not them who kill the body. See that? But you know what? They're not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Speaking of God. Do you understand man can only kill your body? Think about that. So you go out and you share, say that, go down to San Francisco and you're sharing on the streets of San Francisco and you're sharing the gospel and somebody comes up and shoots you in the head. What'd they do? They just gave you a free ride to heaven, right? I mean, it's just a body. Now, I'm not saying we have some suicidal, crazy, you know, wish. But keep it in perspective. So many times people fear getting sick. People fear death. People fear the body breaking down. You know what? It's going to happen. It's happening as we sit here. As we speak. Your body is breaking down. You know, when you go to get up at the end of the service, it may be a little tougher to get up this week than it was last week. That's how fast it's happening. And we're worried about Preserving this life on this earth filled with sin, he says, "Don't fear that. Don't fear those who can take your your life physically. But if God tells you to do something, you better fear Him." In Philippians one twenty one, Paul said, "For to me to live is what Christ." And to die is gain. I mean, it's such a blessing, beloved, when you go to a funeral of someone who knows the Savior. It really is. Some funerals, I don't even wear a black suit. I say, what? What, what am I? I mean, you want to be respectful, but you also want people to understand that you know what this person's in glory. I mean, if we're mourning, we should be mourning for ourselves in this situation. (laughs) Keep things in perspective of eternity. And keep things in perspective of who's in charge. God is able to destroy both soul and body. Look at what he says, in hell forever. See, hell is where Satan himself will be subject to continual destruction. Only God has the keys to death and hell, Revelation 1.18 says. Not only God, so only God should be feared. Man's power is puny besides the power of God. Matthew, in this text, he's not threatening believers with hell. That's not what he's doing. He's pointing out that all mankind mankind should fear the one who determines the destiny of both Soul and body. Not those who can merely kill the body. Our fear for God shows itself in how we react to opportunities to share the gospel. There's going to be results. If you walk out of here and you start boldly sharing the gospel with your family, you know what? You're going to be persecuted by your family. I guarantee it. But if we fail to communicate the gospel to our family members who don't know the Lord because maybe we think they'll be angry with us, or, you know, they won't invite us over for turkey at Thanksgiving or whatever, or ask us to leave, don't come back. We show what? We show that we fear man more than God. So it's, it's, it's very, very important to understand that. And some people when you share the gospel with them, they say, ah, so what? I just want to go and burn in hell and life would be over just non-existence. That's not what that word means. You notice that word destroy in Matthew ten twenty-eight. It's an ongoing destruction. It never ends. It's like being tortured for eternity. It's the same word in Second Thessalonians one nine on when it says, On them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. See, the destruction of hell is 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 something that's continual. It's forever. In Matthew ten twenty eight, the Greek word there translated hell as Gehenna, and it was the name of the city dump, outside the city, outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus used it to illustrate the terrible nature of hell because in that dump, worms would continue. Have you ever been to a dump? It's just disgusting. You've got maggots and you got worms. you got all sorts of horrible things in a dump. You can find some neat things too, but mostly it's gross. Burning trash. That's the illustration he's using. In hell, the unsaved will be consumed in their resurrected bodies forever. People ask sometimes, "Is there literal fire in heaven? Is there literal fire in heaven?" Since both the saved and the unsaved are resurrected to eternal life with literal bodies, in Revelation twenty it shows that the fire in hell is literal and eternal. It's just that you won't burn up. I don't know if you've ever been burned by fire, but it's not fun. And that's just one of the things that they had to look forward to. Last thing, quickly. The the disciple also knows that he's valued by God. In verses 29 to 31, it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father, knowing but the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valued than many sparrows shows two things. First of all, it shows God's interest. That word there basically is the equivalent to a penny for that coin. And the word translated sparrows refers to little birds. And so if two small birds could be bought for a penny, or five birds for two cents, according to Luke 12, 6, those little birds were bought to be served as hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> and yet, verse 29 Says that not one of those inexpensive little bird, when they fall to the ground. And that word fall doesn't even mean fall, it means hop. It means every time one of those little birds just hops. You know, we got little birds over here. You know, they, they make mess everywhere. Like continually cleaning up their mess. It's Disgusting. But these little birds hop around. You know, they see me coming, you know, with the hose. You know, they hop away, you know, fly away. But they're always hopping. Every time they hop, God knows. That's just amazing to me. Nothing misses him. His knowledge is just incredible. Something as insignificant as a bird hopping from one branch to the other. And the Bible says God knows about that. He cares about that. And he's relating that to his disciples. God is the father of every disciple. He knows all of us. And he assigns a number to every hair on our heads. Some of them are big, some of them are small. But God knows how many hairs are on our heads. You know, the average person has about 130,000 hairs on their head. God's interested to that degree in us. And lastly, it shows us his care. Because he says, fear not, in verse 31... Because you're more valuable than those sparrows. If God cares that much for these little dinky birds, you don't think that he cares so much more for you? The same God who cares for those little birds also cares for us. Psalm 91.7 says, A thousand may fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come near thee. In other words, God is protecting. God cares for us. Back in Matthew 6, verse 28 and 30, he said, Consider the lilies of the field. If God so clothed the grass of the field, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, we're often afraid that we could lose our reputation, we could lose our job, we could maybe be injured. We're fearful of those things. But Jesus says not to fear because we are of great worth. And you don't think God is going to care for you. God will take care of you. Last time I checked, all of us will die on time. God will, we will die at the appointed time God has laid out for us. That's good news and bad news. We don't know what the time is, but for all you people that go to the gym every day, thinking somehow you're adding time to your life. (laughs) And we should be it of our body. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're told to take care of it. But there's people that take that too far. There's people that want to be young forever. You're not going to be young forever. And so Matthew here explains to us that we shouldn't be fearful of these things. And he says all that in light of being his disciple. So I, I want to close with a word of prayer and, and then we'll prepare our hearts for our communion time. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, that you have made clear to us that as your disciples, we shouldn't fear the world. And, uh, Father, we know that one day you will deliver us. We know, Lord, that we should fear you more than man, definitely. And we know that you care for us. And, Father, that alone should be enough that we could go out into this lost and dying world and that we could proclaim the truth of the gospel boldly as these disciples did. And it wasn't an easy task. It was very difficult. But that's what you've called us to do as believers. And so I pray that we would embrace that this morning. That, Lord, that this week, this up-and-coming week, as we look for opportunities, even today as we step out of this building out into that lost and dying world on its way to hell, that we would ask you to lead us, to guide us, to share the truth of the gospel with someone. And that we would do it boldly. And that we would let the results up to you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, who doesn't hasn't made that profession of faith, hasn't been transformed by your power, doesn't know what it means to have the Forgiveness of sin. And the burden of guilt and shame lifted from their lives. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, that they would cry out to you humbly. Be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. And I pray that you would transform their heart and their life. As only you can. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.